our journey through the parables all year long. We're studying Jesus. In fact, the theme for 2013 at FCC is it's all about Jesus. And this summer, we're looking at what I believe was Jesus' favorite way to communicate truth. He loved to tell stories. And we're looking at some stories that we know really well, like the story that we're going to look at today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at some stories that maybe we don't know quite so well in the weeks that unfold. This, This series is going to take us all the way through the month of July. But I want to start today, the title of the message is Like a Good Neighbor, and no, I'm not being paid by State Farm, and those of you that work for other insurance companies, don't throw tomatoes at me. Um, I I did think maybe I should call State Farm and see if I could get kind of a a fee of some sort to put toward the Next Steps campaign, but I decided to leave that alone. But I want to start this morning by asking you a question. I want you to think about it in your brain for a moment. How would you define a good neighbor? Think about that for just a moment. How would you define a good neighbor? Think about that for just a moment. Now say it out loud. How would you define a good neighbor? What's your answer? What's a good neighbor? Trustworthy? Someone that helps? Helping hand? Okay, that, we had that in first service as well, someone that's quiet. So, I don't know, maybe that says something about your neighbor, if you think it's got to be somebody that's quiet. What else? Someone that's friendly. Yesterday, I was cutting my grass, one of my least favorite things to do, and I decided to go ahead and do a couple extra three or four swipes next to my neighbor's house so that it would all be the same level of cut, and my lovely wife came up and patted me on the back, and she said, you are such a good neighbor. Is that what it takes to be a good neighbor, just to cut a little bit of grass? Is that all it is? I want you this morning, as we dive into this parable, that that most of us have heard read maybe dozens of times. My guess is everybody that's here today, no matter where you're at on the faith spectrum, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. As I read the text, as we look at insights into God's Word, I want that question to be rolling around in your brain. What is a good neighbor? What's it take to be a good neighbor? Maybe you can even say, am I a good neighbor? You could even ask, do I have a good neighbor? So with that, no further ado, let's dive in. Allison, can you put the back screen up as well? That would be awesome if you can crank that up for me. Luke 10 tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, but before we get to the parable, we need to look at kind of an introductory uh, give and take between Jesus and an expert of the law. And it's in this conversation that it leads to the telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke 10, beginning with verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answered a question with a question. He did that all the time. The expert in the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And if you stop right there, that's awesome. Jesus is really impressed with your answer. But look at what verse 29 says. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And because he asked the question, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Three things kind of jump out at me in this introductory give and take. And number one is this. I'm convinced that this lawyer, this legal expert, he's really not attempting to learn, but instead he's trying to test Jesus and to trap Jesus. He knows the Hebrew Scriptures. He's an expert in the law. He's an expert in the Pentateuch. He's an expert in the Torah. He knows the law. But he wants to see what Jesus has to say. I think an interesting exercise for you sometime, if you have time on your hand and you have a Bible in your hand, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and circle or underline every time some really smart person tries to trap Jesus. You will be stunned how many times it happens. And that's what's happening right here. This lawyer is trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. Second thing that jumps out at me, this expert in the law doesn't go to Exodus chapter 20. What is Exodus chapter 20, by the way? Do you know? The Ten Commandments. That's where you would think he would go. Instead, he goes to Deuteronomy 6 and actually Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And look at Jesus' reaction. He approves. He says, you get it. He says, my ministry isn't about a bunch of do-nots. My ministry is about love. Love God unconditionally. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the third thing that jumps out at us this morning has to be the fact that this lawyer is in the business of justifying his religious life. He's trying to justify his religious life. See, my guess is this this expert of the law knew an awful lot about Jesus. It's no accident that he throws out Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 instead of Exodus chapter 20. It's no accident that, that he knows what Jesus is all about. Maybe he was a secret disciple. Maybe he, like Nicodemus, has been following him from a distance. But at the end of the conversation, at the end of the day, he can't just accept good answer. He's in the business of justifying himself and justifying his religious life. Can I tell you many a modern-day Christ follower suffers from this? You probably know some people who suffer from this attempt to justify who they are and what they're about. Maybe, maybe you struggle with that. I know I have at times. And yet it's through this attempt to justify that we get this most famous of all parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So with that, let's read together God's word, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He crossed over. So to a Levite, When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord, Luke 10, verses 30 to 37. 
There's a lot there. For instance, did you realize that Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles? The road was a road that descended sharply toward the Jordan River. It was just north of the Dead Sea. The road was curved. It was rugged. Uh, Rocky terrain was all around. It was the perfect spot for a robber, for a thug to hide and wait to attack. Now, this road, according to historians, was considered especially dangerous, and that's a significant fact if you think about it, because all first century travel was considered risky and dangerous. And this man is robbed, this man is beaten, his clothes are taken, he's left close to death, he's in trouble, he needs help, he needs an angel, and his prayers are answered. He says, God, here I am, I need help, and here comes a priest. Today we call them preachers. Can you imagine you are in trouble? You've been beaten up. Your clothes have been taken. Your money has been taken. You're in need, and down comes Jim Koontz walking toward you. I mean, you would just be excited, wouldn't you? You'd be excited to see him. But unfortunately, this priest had somewhere else to go. He had something else to do. Maybe he had a sermon to preach. We don't know. Maybe he had a religious ceremony that he was supposed to preside over. We don't know. But my guess is, as this leader of the law, this expert in the law, and everyone else around was hearing this, they couldn't believe how the story was unfolding. The priest crossed to the other side and kept on going. Could such a thing ever happen? Well, a second person comes along. This person's a Levite, not a professional minister of the day, but rather a lay leader of the first century. Someone who knew very well the teachings of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The teaching of Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And yet the Levite's response is the same as the priest. He was too busy. He had too much to do. Maybe he was busy doing the work of the Lord, but whatever happened, we don't know. He crossed to the other side, and he kept on walking. As Jesus continues the story, I can only imagine the response of this leader of the law. My guess is his eyes got real big when he said the third person was a Samaritan. See, in this day, first century world, we have a hard time really understanding the hatred between Jews and Samaritans and vice versa, but it was quite an animosity. There was no love lost. And yet Jesus makes a special point to say it was the enemy. It was the outsider. It was the despised one who scooped down and came to the rescue of this man in need. Mark Black on his commentary in Luke said, Samaritans represent the ultimate despised group for first century Jews. Fred Craddock, in his commentary on Luke, says, ceremonially unclean, socially outcast, religiously a heretic, this Samaritan is the very opposite of the lawyer, as well as the priest and the Levite. And the point should be easy for us to grab a hold of today. As this expert of the law, this lawyer, hears the story, he would be much more inclined to believe that the professional preacher or the lay leader would help his brother in need compared to the Samaritan 
who was passing by. Mark Moore, former professor at Ozark Christian College, now minister out in California, summarized it like this, talking about the Samaritan. Here's what he writes. He says, he bound up his wounds, perhaps making bandages with his own clothes. He poured out his own wine on the wounds as a disinfectant. He poured out his own oil on the wounds to soothe the pain. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He spent his own money for the man's lodging and food. Two days' wages. It was not that he liked the man. It's that he saw someone that had a need. And this Samaritan teaches us lessons that connect with our lives as Christ followers in 2013. And I've got four real quickly this morning. Number one is this. Understand, biblical knowledge and religious ritual alone do not warm the heart of God. Biblical knowledge and religious ritual alone do not warm the heart of God. Now, am I saying don't be religious, don't go to church, don't worship? I'm not saying that at all. Am I saying don't study your Bible, don't read your Bible? I'm not saying that at all. But if you think ritual can get you to heaven, you're missing the point of Jesus. If you think mere intellectual knowledge can get you to heaven, you're missing the point of the teaching. And so we should be a people of the book. I'm glad many of you are a people of the book. But if we don't put what's in the book into our lives and into action, we miss the point Jesus is trying to make. Number two, cocoon Christianity isn't the answer either. Now you're probably saying, what in the world is cocoon Christianity? Cocoon Christianity is where you, and if you have a family, your family, you just kind of build a a cocoon around your lives. And you keep the big, bad world out, and you just revel in Christ. And it sounds good for a while, but it's really difficult to fulfill your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ if you are embracing cocoon Christianity. We're called to be, we say it all the time around here, the salt of the earth. We're called to be the light of the world. And you can't do it. It's impossible to do it if you always live your life in a cocoon of protection. In a cocoon where you're cradled from the outside world. Number three, random acts of kindness and blessing in the name of the Lord shouldn't be considered a modern day creation. See, I love the the attention that Oprah has given to random acts of kindness, and we've all seen the pay it forward stuff. It's probably happened to you. It's happened to me. Somebody that you don't know buys your coffee. You're in line at McDonald's for your small coffee, just a dollar, and they buy yours, so then you buy the person behind you, and that whole chain reaction thing kind of sets off, and it's cool, and it's a smile, and it was a great movie, and and all, all of that. But that's not just a 2013 thing. That's not just a 21st century thing. Jesus, his three years of public ministry, looked for opportunities to bless hurting people. I love the story of the widow at Nain's son being raised from the dead. I think it's Luke chapter 7. Here's Jesus hanging out with his disciples, going from village to village. He's preaching. They're doing revivals. Uh, People are getting saved. It's awesome. And he sees this funeral procession. And he sees this really sad woman, and he finds out that her only son has died. She's a widow, and her only son has died. And he raises him from the dead. And you know, we don't know if that young man that was raised from the dead went on to be a disciple. 
We don't know that the widow of Nain went on to open a feeding center. It's not in the text. But my guess is because of that random act of love and kindness, their lives were changed forever. They were never the same. I'd put money on it if I bet, and I don't. So don't write me a note, okay? I don't need it. Number four, number four. Jesus isn't impressed with our religion, but he's rather impressed with our relationship with him and with others. Love God. Love people. Religion for for many, many years has been the, the goal that many people have had to be in a right standing with God the Father. And yet what warms the heart of God is that personal relationship, that desire to, ha- to have a relationship. When life's tough, to be able to say, God, today really stinks. I- I'm really struggling. Not to pray some prayer in King James Version that you think he wants you to pray. Relationship means relationship. And when we let our relationship with Jesus Christ drive our lives, how can we not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself? I want to close this morning with a story that I read for the very first time this week. And from the moment I read it, it changed me. And I hope it will change you. It's the story of a very ordinary day for a 20-year-old Harvard student by the name of Cameron Holopeter. Cameron Holopeter was spending time in New York City. He was getting ready to get on a, a subway train at a New York subway station. And as he was walking down the steps toward the platform, something went terribly wrong inside his brain, sending him into a violent seizure. Convulsing rapidly, he fell to the ground. He got up again and then began to stumble, moving toward the edge of the platform. And moments later, he tumbled into the railway bed just as an approaching train began to shake the station. Now somehow, no one managed to capture the moment for YouTube. No camera caught the face of the person who turned away with eyes clenched against the absolute horror of what was happening. No lens zoomed in on the face of the other commuters who just stood there transfixed by the scene, frozen in a sense of utter helplessness. No video clip exists of all the other people who were in such a hurry to get where they needed to go or whose hardness had so calloused them to their neighbor's plight that they missed the moment altogether. In seconds, a young, rich, white, well-educated young man with dreams of making it in Hollywood would meet an unthinkably violent death and no one could stop it. Or no one would stop it. Except for the man who stopped it. Inner Wesley Autry, a 50-year-old black construction worker who did the unthinkable. Somehow, Autry crossed the boundary of horror that withered others. Somehow, he unstuck his feet from the concrete shoes of helplessness that froze others. Somehow, he stepped up and over the high curb of hurry or social hardness that could have prevented his action. Let's put their pictures up on the screen. Autry was very busy taking his two daughters home before he went to work. He was a middle-aged black man from Harlem that had nothing in common 
with the white kid from Harvard down in the ditch. But in spite of it all, Wesley Autry chose to cross over. He strode down that subway platform. He looked down into the rail bed. Then he jumped down into that ditch. He covered the bloody, writhing man with his own body. He held him in place against the ground between the tracks as the subway train thundered over them. And in a moment, Wesley Autry saved Cameron Holopater's life. Interviewed about the incident later, Wesley Autry said that when he saw the headlights of the train appear, he said, I had to make a split-second decision. I don't feel like I did something spectacular. I just saw someone who needed help. I did what I was felt was right. You're supposed to come to other people's rescue. And let's put this next slide up on the screen. Because of his action, you have a life that was saved. You have a life that was changed. Because one man crossed over to save another. The priest, the Levite, they had religious things to do. They were in a hurry. They didn't want to become unceremonially clean. And so they crossed over to the other side. Wesley Autry had places to be. He had things to do. But he crossed over fear and changed a life, saved a life forever. And there's one more person that crossed over. And that's Jesus Christ, the one who told the story. He crossed from life in heaven with God the Father to come to a broken world, to minister publicly for three years in the midst of people that hated his guts. And then he went to the cross and he died a prisoner's death, even though he was perfect in every way, because he loves you and because he loves me. And so my bottom line for you today is because we love Jesus unconditionally, we need to be like Wesley Autry. We need to be like the Good Samaritan. We need to look for opportunities to be a blessing to people in need. Am I saying that you're going to have to jump down off a platform at a subway station with a train barreling down in front of you? Probably not. But my guess is you might meet a Cameron Holopater in need this month. Maybe even this week. And what's your answer going to be? Are you willing to cross over and by do it, doing it, communicate your unconditional love for God and your love for your neighbor that you've never met? The parable of the Good Samaritan, friends, it never gets old when I read it because I'm reminded that my faith can't just be an 11 a.m. Sunday morning thing. This week, this month, this year, look for opportunities to be a Good Samaritan. Look for opportunities to be a Wesley Autry. Look for opportunities to make a difference for God's glory. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. 
and thank you for this parable that we've heard a lot. We've read a lot. And yet the truth of it never gets old. Father, we live in a broken world. We live in a hurting world. We have people in our lives that my guess is right now today at 11.56 a.m. on a Sunday that they are in despair. They are discouraged. They're desperate. It's my prayer that someone here is going to reach out with a word of encouragement, with a helping hand, with the love of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the honor of being followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to never grow tired of living our faith every day. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.